Nine against the nine. 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 A podcast about Lord of the Rings. Right. How ready are you? I was. I'm as ready as I'll ever be at this point. We're gonna do an episode, and I don't honestly know what we're gonna title it. I had, I had considered it like on supremacy or whatever. Is that what you're thinking this is about? I thought it's called supremacy. Supremacy. It might be. Uh, we might be condemning it to that title now, or like we might be establishing that title right now. I thought we established that episode one. You're like. Episode 7, Supremacy, y'all. Yeah. Tune I, in or don't. Do you think that we use the term post-colonial? I'm sure that I use the term post-colonial at some point to refer to it. I'm not sure the listener has heard that term from you. I've heard it several times, but we will define it for everyone's sake. Yeah, we're going to define some terms. Um, before the mics were on properly, you were saying, what's the structure here, right? I want the structure to be some some corrections first I got some corrections I don't know if you do I don't think about corrections okay <laughs> I, I move on with my life <laughs> charge forward um, corrections and then there's some there's some intro material I want to talk to sort of frame this discussion and then definitions definitely I want to define several terms before we start doing the analysis I think that we're talking about supremacy models in Middle Earth and we're talking about ways that those models intersect with supremacy models in the real world that we live in. Okay. Are so, influenced by or echoed by? So when we set out this podcast, when we started, we were looking at hobbits as hobbits, orcs as orcs, elves as elves, dwarves as dwarves. Where we're not making connections. We're being like, this is a world into itself. Let it be. And now we're going to look at the supremacy model in that world by itself. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make connections, parallels, analogies, etc. from Tolkien's world to actual Earth, England, United States, sure. yeah, yeah. Africa, Middle East, etc. The, yeah, the real geopolitical world. Um, of but, which the it, conscious listener is a part. Yep. And we will be making probably comparisons between the way Tolkien treats certain races to the way certain races are spoken of, certain so-called races are spoken of here in the real world. But I, you were you were saying orcs are orcs, dwarves are dwarves. I think that's probably still we can still retain that a lot of the time because the supremacy models in Middle Earth are, uh, you know, oppressive to dwarves. Right. It is legit that they're dwarves. Right. They're not, they don't have to be a stand-in. Correct. But yeah. There's no orcs here in our world. Well, there are there are things. Yeah, right. There are ways the orcs are referred to that affect the way which have yeah. parallels. Yes, here. That's what I'm talking about. Is as the second of the two analytical angles. All right. To, but to kick this episode off, I want to make a couple corrections, and I, then I think we should charge forward. <laughs> Sound good? <laughs> yeah, charge. Great. All right. So. In, I think, the Orc episode, I was talking about the Rohirrim and about Eomer. Eomer is talking about, you know, going across the border, wiping out Orcs and clearing the land of Orcs and stuff. And I had referred to him as being in the Texas border tradition. And I want to clarify that I don't know shit about Texas. 
so I can't claim to have any any firsthand knowledge or even extensive academic knowledge about the so-called Texas border tradition. I'm literally referring to one book, and it's Lonesome Dove. And I cut most of the content from that episode where I referred to them as cowboys. What I really meant was rangers. Uh, the ranger, You referred to the Rohirrim as cowboys. Yeah, the Rohirrim are more like rangers in, in the uh, Lonesome Dove vocabulary. The rangers are the guys who establish and maintain the borders of white America against Mexicans and natives. I'm thinking of uh, Walker, t- Walker, Texas Ranger, who's Chuck Norris, big time TV yeah, yeah. series. Watched when I was little, but I'm not sure I remember what. I definitely missed all of the geopolitical stuff going on. So yeah, what a Ranger is. It's mostly just Chuck Norris kicking ass. Yeah. What a ranger is in the Texas border tradition, I can't speak to. I can only speak to this one novel, and it is about cowboys as well as rangers, but the Rohirrim are acting like rangers act in Lonesome Dove, covering the border and uh, determining who's who belongs and who doesn't. Maybe like Border Patrol. Yeah, definitely. Yep, they're Border Patrol in Lonesome Dove. Okay. Uh, also, I'm always throwing around the term Quendi, Quenya. That refers to a language and a, and a people, yeah? Maybe I should check. <laughs> okay, according to Robert Foster's Guide to Middle-Earth, Quendi is the elves and Quenya is the language. So, that's that. And I will continue probably to make a mix. I, I will continue to mix that up, maybe. Quendi speak Quenya. Mm-hmm. Okay, so supremacy, there's a lot of things to talk about. I, I want to start off by talking about this uh, this speech that I have been listening to in preparation for this episode. And are you good with me framing it around this? Maybe I should frame it and then tell me if you're like, no, that's bullshit, I don't agree. <laughs> All right, go ahead. All right, so the writer R.F. Kuang, um, whose work I wasn't familiar with until recently, delivered the 2022 Tolkien lecture on fantasy fiction 2022 at Oxford um I started listening to that because uh like a student mentioned her work and I was reading about her on Wikipedia and it just seemed um fortuitous that she happened to be at this Tolkien lecture right um the name of her speech and you could look it up it's on a bunch of platforms um, is called Goodness, Beauty, and Truth, The Value of Art in Times of Crisis. And it's a wide-ranging, it's a wide-ranging speech. But a lot of it uh, is about the, the role of ideology in a novel and the way novels are read ideologically. Written and read ideologically with an emphasis on ideas. She jokes at the beginning that like... Uh, We'll call it the ideological novel if we're being polite and the propaganda novel if we're being honest. It's the joke. Okay. Um, I want to quote her a couple times and, and make a couple points about what she says. She says that we, here in the West or whatever, we want our art to send an important message, but we don't like it when that message becomes too obvious. Readers, readers in the West seem to think that they're not reading propaganda and they they seem to not want to read propaganda. And a lot of that is Cold War stuff, but some of it's just aesthetics, right? 
Like it's kind of legit that I want to read a book and I want to be, I can make my mind up, you know. And she wants there to be a message, but. No, no, no. She, she doesn't, she's just saying that we as readers, we, yeah, yeah, we want, we want there to be a message, but we get weird. We start to feel weird if the message is, feels heavy handed. So it's like there's a message there that we get to seek and find. Like yeah, we get to interpret our own meaning from it. That's appealing to Western readers. Right. In my experience, and I think that's what Kwong is getting at in her speech. This is like mystery novels. We're like, oh, now I, now I see it. Right. So then later she says this thing. Very few aspiring writers now would happily label themselves propagandists, and that is probably a good thing. But I will argue that in our current climate, we do a terrible lot of reading books as propaganda, by which I mean we reduce them to didactic, moralistic, and mimetic interpretations. We expect them to tell us precisely how to speak and act and think and behave because we've fallen into the habit of reading and critiquing books solely for their themes and messages, or what we think are their themes and messages, rather than reading them as explorations of all the infinite ways that one can be human. So break that down into, can you say that in a different way? Because mm-hmm. there were a lot of a lot of big words in there, like this well-crafted, well-crafted speech. Yeah, she gives two examples too. So even though we seem to want to find our own, uh, even though we seem to resent being told what to think about a novel, we, we, read as prop- we read them as propaganda sometimes in that we look for a political or ideological message rather than reading it for... Uh, reading. I'm, I'll just quote her again. Reading them as explorations of all the infinite ways that one can be human. So the novels could exist as like, here are things that... Here are ways that we, in which we are human. Look at all of these that's different what, myriad yeah, ways. That's what art does. And right. maybe, maybe we, in spite of our disinclination to read propaganda, we look for... Th- themes and moral messaging i mean my immediate thought is you read the bible and you can you look for specific things to support what you want it what you want to be there yeah or like you quote some books of the bible where there's like an opposite counterpoint somewhere else that's like against the thing you want but you're like no in this book it says this which supports how i feel and the things that i want to do Mm -hmm. or even the notion that the bible is a story that's telling us a message about how to live rather than just like like take you know abraham or whatever it's just a story of this guy's life you know um the bible's a tricky example because it's so obviously propagandic or has been used as propaganda for so long right she gives the example of lolita by vladimir Nabokov. Um, Nabokov and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. So people will read Lolita or critique Lolita as a defense of uh, child abuse, let's say, um, when it's when it's more complex than that. Not that it doesn't excuse it or anything. It's just the book is about more things than just that one thing. Mm-hmm. And The Bluest Eye, she says, we, we, we lose a lot of the dimensions of the book when we say... The bluest eyes about the evils of racism, rather than uh, housing inequity and internalized uh, internalized beauty standards. You know, womanhood, family life, all the things that the book is actually about, in addition to racism. Does that make sense? 
And people, so re- you go we, if we read those, if we read um, Lolita and the Bluest Eye, and we're reading it with thinking like, oh, this is about child abuse, this is about racism. We are over as readers, we are oversimplifying yes. the books, and we are losing a lot of the nuance and a lot of the humanity and human things that exist, like the complex complications of humanity, mm-hmm. because we're like, that's child abuse, that's racism. Yeah. And that can be um, that can be antagonistic to the art, or it can be in like an ally position with the art. You know, you can be reductive in order to dismiss a piece of art, or say it's dangerous, so, or you, or you can be reductive in order to sell and uh, to listify and get a book. You know, um, ex- get a, get a book more exposure. Right, marketing and business. Yeah. And- yeah capitalism um the complexity that amount of complexity and the simple the oversimplification reminds me of cho chang in harry potter the goblet of no the one after that order of the phoenix sure so cho and harry if you haven't read it it's probably a little few spoilers but cho and harry are doing like this little romantic interest and cho starts crying oh they kiss and Cho's crying and then Ron, Hermione, and Harry talking about it. And how was it? And Harry's like, it was wet. And then Ron says something, I don't know, something simple, like maybe uh, maybe mean or whatever, maybe crass, maybe it was crass. And Hermione's like, well, it's more complex. Um, Cho's probably feeling like guilty about this thing sad about losing cedric guilty for liking harry tired for this like all of these emotions that like she just lists off like five six seven and ron's like one person can't feel all that so in his interpretation it's like it's one thing but hermione recognizes that it's probably a slew of emotions sure cool yeah so we have a tendency to read like ron read cho cheng Got it. Um, Philip Roth says something similar in some book. I'm not sure what. Maybe So I Married a Communist. He, basically, that literature and and uh, politics are contrary in the sense that uh, where politics tries to reduce things and literature tries to expand things. You take a mm. character in a book who is a uh, Democrat or whatever, and you create a whole existence for that character. But in politics, you take a complex human being or complex socio-political situation and you reduce it to a party platform, talking point, individual label or whatever. Politics is inherently reductive. Red or blue, win and lose, Mm -hmm. us and them. Whereas literature is inherently expansive. Right. So uh, those things being said, we don't want to read Tolkien reductively, I don't think. And I think all of our episodes make that clear I think we're doing a deep dive into the expansive realities of many characters and situations and but this episode is a political critique this is the one where we're sure. doing it so Kwong does argue easily that Tolkien has written an ideological novel it's pretty obvious to me that this is this is an ideological novel uh, and I agree with her that the ideology of this novel is heroism broadly speaking sure right if we're going to reduce it to like one propaganda point Tolkien is pressing forward the notion of heroism 
I don't think that he set out to establish or promote explicitly like a supremacist model. But I think that the novel is a carrier, maybe an unwitting carrier, for certain supremacist models that were prevalent in his time and our time now to whatever extent. So a carrier kind of like a an animal, a person could be a carrier for disease and that disease can get somewhere and spread. Not that it's like active yeah. or killing them, but they are the carrier mm-hmm. of it. And notions of good and evil that stereotypes and their intersection with notions of good and evil that existed at Tolkien's time find their way into the book and uh, and they find their way out of the book and they continue along here in the real world and they continue to mirror things in the book. Um, so while the book is, is wholly fantastical, it is colored by some real world sociopolitical dynamics. Sure. And like I said at the beginning, I think it'd be silly to ignore that. Yep. So that's what we're doing. We're not, we're going to not ignore it. That's also like the context in which it was written. You cannot not you cannot ignore the context in that he in which he wrote it or that it exists in it. You can, but it seems pretty naive, especially when you're seven episodes in, right? You might as well take a minute. Right. And that's what RF Kuang was saying, don't ignore the complexities of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. She all but she also in that speech is ultimately ca- like cautioning people to chill with the anxiety about ideology and like let ideology sit comfortably with the art. But um, we don't need to get into that. One last point, and then I think we should move to definitions. Um, I'm a f- big fan of Gordon White's podcast, Rune Soup, and he's always talking about Middle Earth. And uh, he recently said about the creators of, I think I think about the creators of the Amazon show. He said it's, it seems almost as if the, the creators or the writers of the show hate the material. <laughs> And I, okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure exactly why. I think because of just a sort of a, a like an aggressive disregard for its sanctity. I think that's maybe his point, but I don't want to put words in his mouth that they were mutilating it. That's mm. my take on what he thought is happening, right? Okay. I can't speak to that particular program because you haven't seen it. Sure, right? Um, but just to be clear, we, I don't hate the material, and I'm, I love the material, and I can't speak for you, but. Uh, my intention here is not to mutilate the material. My intention is to uh, understand myself and the world I live in with the material as a tool. Okay, I like that. I like that. Sounds good. All right, word. So now let's wreck that motherfucker. You ready to talk definitions? Sure. We're going to lay out definitions of some terms that will come up. So in order to be clear about the words we use, some of these heavy words that have a lot of connotation, we're going to define things like post-colonialism, supremacy, racism. What else we got to define? I don't I don't know that I have a definition of racism, but... I have, I have that definition. That's because I don't have that one. Um, but yeah, and also so that when we're using the words, we can adjust them and use them accurately and we know what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> okay. We're not doing it alphabetically, right? No. Okay. You we want to start with racism? Got, yeah, and I'm and it might be might be more like a racist idea. So I'm I'm looking at Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning. So in the prologue of this on page five, he's he's setting out to define these things. So halfway down the page he says this is a direct quote 
My definition of a racist idea is a simple one. It is any concept that regards one racial group as inferior or superior to another racial group in any way. Concise. So you got that like inferior or superior one racial group to another. Word. Uh, like candy, I attempted to define some words myself and then I checked them against traditional definitions. So I got a definition for supremacy, which seems to uh, do almost the same thing as that definition. Yeah, and I think, does. I, think that, I think that he defines it somewhere. I feel like when I listened to the audiobook of the Jason Reynolds version of Stamped, it's in there somewhere. So and I said that supremacy was a social model wherein one demographic is empowered or legitim- legitimized at the expense of, an, of another demographic. Group of people. And then I checked. Uh, Oxford says the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. And then uh, I, I checked a Merriam also just to have like some triangulation. They had a definition of supremacism. Supremacism is the belief that a certain group of people is superior to all others. So superiority. Um, Oxford taxed it to authority, power, or status. Yeah, I had used the word power and I used the word legitimacy, um, which I guess is like status. Yeah, there's le- there's le- legitimacy also aligns. It's uh, syn- synonymous with validation, being like, yep, that's okay. That's valid. That's legitimate. So uh, colonialism, post-colonialism, decolonize, etc. are kind of tertiary terms right for this discussion sure um do you have definitions for those you want to try to define colonialism from the dome (laughs) from the cranium straight off the top of the head so colonialism um is sort of colonizing a place or a people or space except space albeit um physical or metaphysical so the united states started as 13 colonies so england came over with people and power gunpowder arms military etc they said this is our land now we live here we're going to colonize we're going to bring settlers this is and they just like took it over yeah and i think importantly they exported right they exported from their own country no i think the, the the point was to export goods and materia from the quote new world and bring it back into oh, the empire. Oh, I see. So I was like, but yeah, export from the new world, import to England. To yeah. take, be like, we're going to get your materials. I think that for the English, and I don't know, but my impression is that colonial service was kind of not fun. Like going to India, not many people were into that. It was not as nice as, not as yeah, maybe not as nice as living in England. It was rougher. It was quote unquote the frontier. You were quote unquote settlers. Yeah. Pioneers. Plus, on top of that, this notion that there's a group of natives that need to be constantly subdued, uh, you know, quelled. Rightfully so, be given that they probably want you to leave. Yep. <laughs> Not you, Clark. <laughs> <laughs> there's an awkward pause there. It's not going to flow well. It'll be fine. Yeah, so you, you, you were talking plural. about colonialism in the in the North America, and that's a kind of a curious one. 
because of the near total genocide of the natives and um, because so many people wanted to stay for whatever reason. And that is the one that uh, we're most, I feel like we're yeah, very familiar with. This is the same land in which that happened. Yeah, we're so close to it, we can't even see it. I wanted to find colonialism the, from the dome like a month ago, how I wrote it down from the dome a month ago. And then I want to back it up with Oxford and this dude named Jürgen Osterhamel. Uh, I thought that colonialism was a form of economic exploitation wherein a nation extracts and exports resources, material wealth, and human labor from another geographic area, and that geographic area is understood as possessed by that nation, though not subject to the same governance as so-called citizens of said nation. Yeah. It's much too complex to be workable, but uh, I thought all those things were wrapped into my understanding of colonialism. The listener may have to rewind the track a little bit and listen to that again. I th- I'm talking about exploitation and exports, uh, possession, and it, and it's something like a supremacy model, a power differential between the citizens and the uh, the governed residents, aka the natives, of the colonized area. Those those people can become citizens, maybe in some maybe. models. Yep. If they uh, if they what's the word I'm looking for? Conform, comply. Comply. Conform. Um, Assimilate. Assimilate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it's it's an ex like from that from that colony you're exporting resources, materials, and people, yeah. wealth, people, labor, ideas. Yep. Okay. Oxford defines postcolonialism as a theoretical approach in various disciplines that is concerned with the lasting impact of colonization in former colonies. So I think I'm ready to charge forward into supremacy in Middle Earth. Sound the bugle. For the episode. Sound the horn. Ready to start the episode, Clark, are you? Let's go. We're talking about the text. So that was a pretty long intro. Seemingly, that was a long... Set set of preconditions, and now we're going to talk about supremacy in Middle Earth and how it influences supremacy models here on planet Earth. Right. Intro done, let's let's talk about Middle Earth. What do you got? I got uh, basically only two points, although maybe a third point, right? And the first one is elven supremacy and the way that elven supremacy in Middle Earth uh, echoes supremacy models here in our world. Mm-hmm. That's a Middle Earth situation, right? There's no such thing as elven supremacy here in the real world. Because elves don't exist. Yes, but in Middle Earth, there's an elven supremacy model. Sure. Numenorean supremacy. The Numenorean uh, colonization model. And then... Uh, and then maybe the like uh, the, the issue in this book, the gender balance issue in this book but I think that that's actually not a middle earth problem as it is like a real world like it's being imposed on the vision it's not inherent to middle earth it might be inherent to middle earth it's just like the narrator isn't is ignoring the female characters or the non-male characters the non-male well that's a question do they not do they truly not exist are we just given a privileged perspective that favors only the male characters they're like eight 
It's like I mean, it's like a book about World War II. They're like takes, eight, but they're really only like two. Yeah, we'll get to it. They're there. They're there. The Endwives exist, but we don't know the where Ent- they Wives are. The Endwives is a good... We should talk about the Endwives specifically. I don't know whether we're talking about it now, but because that's a good um, emblem of the situation. It's almost like... Yeah, let's... No, you got, you we'll got your two that. points. Those are my two and a half, three points, basically. And I've got a bunch of little text quotes to fill in here and there and be like, here's textual evidence. You of, think they're related to those three things? Uh, we'll see. We'll yeah, see okay, where they cool. fall in. And then I also have like... Uh, things that I see in Middle Earth that seem to intersect with real world supremacy models like like there's a lot of stuff about orcs to talk about getting back at orcs and the way they're described and how that mirrors racist stereotypes here in the real world and I've got I think a lot of my text quotes are supporting those real world racist ideas ditto the Haradrim and Mm. uh, and ditto like the absence of women right the missing <laughs> I have written in my notes absence of females aka missing women theory see also ent wives <laughs> so you so had ent wives we will get to it alright in terms of elven supremacy just in a previous episode like the the last one Legolas and Gimli I was like casually I was like it's it's called Nargothrond and listening to it again I had already explained how the elves had take had seized the caves from dwarves Dwarves they referred to as petty dwarves mm-hmm. and whom they hunted yep. prior to their taking over the caves, right? So it's not called Nargothrond. It was called something else. It had a dwarvish name. And my casual, like I'll tell that story and then I'll be like, oh, it's called Nargothrond. My casual um, accidental falling into elven supremacy is uh, is like demonstrated in that moment. Right, so it's sort of like mountains in the United States had, like the indigenous people had names for them, but we do not use those names. We've named them other yeah. things. It's like if you gave the whole history of the of the you know the native name for Mount Washington, right? And you gave that whole history, and then you went immediately and casually right back to calling it Mount Washington, right? That's it's just demonstrates the potency of a supremacy model. Um. So, and given that, like, the the hobbits, they love the elves, right? They're always on about the elves. Bilbo loves elves. Frodo loves elves. And then the Silmarillion is an elvish history, right? They are the protagonist of the Middle-earth story. So history is written by, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? History is written by the... Victors. Victors, sure. This is like C- Roma Victor. This is like Caesar's history of Gaul. Mm-hmm. So the only written like history that we have of Gaul is written by mm-hmm. Caesar. Right, yeah, yeah. Ditto like the the you know like the church's writings on the the heresies and the uh the various different sects of Christianity that were wiped out by the Orthodox Church. Mm. Also there was a there's an English panel series called QI. Uh stands for quite interesting. It's good uh, it's an enjoyable show. It's it's comedy, it's trivia. They were talking on one little clip in one episode where they were like this is the first time that this has ever been done or like this is the first time this this thing happened and some guy was like, "Well, actually I object. There like there's plenty of oral tradition in like African nations where like 
oh, it was like a well, it was like a welfare thing. Like you give, you put money into the pot so no one goes hungry. And the panel was like, oh, this existed in like for the first time in history in this like white state. And this guy was right. like, actually, it's existed before. It's just and like it's an oral tradition. It may not have been written down. And they're like, yeah, the, okay, we see that maybe the history isn't written, so we don't acknowledge it. We don't value. It, we don't know the oral history. Right. But it exists somewhere else. Yeah, and the arrogance and yeah. and um, the myopia of saying the way I'm doing things is the legitimate way to right. write it down, to document it, to create a deed, a record. Well, did with you paper. sign it? With well, pa- your yeah. signature is there. Does right. your signature yeah. count for anything? Um, if you don't sign, as it, it though count. as though like the spoken word were less legitimate as a as a method. Correct. It's not because paper is more legit. It's because the colonizer uses paper and the colonized uses the uses the spoken word. Right. Okay, so I don't know that I have quotes to support the Elven supremacy, and I frankly I think we did it in the Legolas Gimli episode. Sure. You feel me? We talked a lot about that situation. Yeah. The children of Iluvatar, the firstborn. Firstborn. Right? They get their special island place. Not island. They get their special land. Um, you know. So there is evidence of, I mean, do you want to do a parallel? Because I've got some quotes about elves being called the fairest folk. This is talking about. Yeah. So what you're, you're getting at this notion that elven supremacy in Middle Earth mirrors white supremacy yeah. in our world in yep. the so-called west or whatever elves are for sure white people you're saying they're depicted as white i mean their their skin is white sure caucasian however you want to say it is that a hundred percent in middle earth is that true in middle earth i don't know i that's my sense it's it's the sense and i think there was backlash against the rings of power because of because of that Understanding mm-hmm. that Rings of Power hat shows elves of color. Okay, and you wanted to talk more about that. You got quotes that show that elves are white dudes. Yeah. yeah. So the white the white elf situation. Right. So on Fellowship of the Ring, my page eighty nine, they're talking about they're singing a song, the fair elven tongue. Blah 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 blah. It starts Snow White, Snow White, O Lady Clear, O Queen Beyond the Western Seas. Uh, I think it's like Gilthaniel or Elbereth, but Snow White, Snow White, we sing to thee. So it's clear that being fair, this like person that songs are about is Snow White. And the elves are called the fairest folk on that same page. So this is another song um, talking about an elven maid, Nimrodel, Nimrodel. Did you hear the voice of Nimrodel? So there's a song about Nimrodel, and the third stanza of the song, her hair was long, her limbs were white, and fair she was and free. And in the wind she went as light as leaf of linden tree. It sounds... White white limbs, and she was fair. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of that stuff in Shakespeare, too, and I think what you're getting at is uh, a a European beauty standard of... uh, Sure paleness right right which i think is also a class concern i've heard this argument made that uh i think i know where you're getting i've probably heard that too like uh people staying in the house all day rather than working in a field um and having super pale skin being super delicate because you never have to do anything you're it's kind of like uh you know like almost like culinary like the flesh of an animal that has not been allowed to move or see or see light Yeah. yeah 
So then, and like you're very delicate and you can hold someone's hands like, oh, how soft your hands are. Mm-hmm. But you also get the, the, and the counterpoint to that might be like, oh, you've never worked a day in your life. So there's like a different value there that you can work with your hands. I'm not trying to let the class uh, critique get in the way of a race, criti- of, of like a race critique either. Um, I agree that there's like a, like a white, black, good, evil distinction that yeah. is uh, that is skin color related in this book for sure and I want to get at that a little more when later when we talk about the depiction of orcs right and orcs in in contrast and contradistinction to certain types of men certain types of elves or whatever um so I agree it's there elves are white and and that models a your point is that elves are white and that models that mirrors a white supremacy model here in our geopolitical world, right? Yes. You got more on that or you want to talk about Numenorians? So I got another one for for elves when this is when the Sam Frodo, I think Marion Pippin, are they there at this point? So this is in the chapter three is Company of the Fellowship. This is towards the end of the chapter. They're talking with Gildor and Gildor is like counseling them at nighttime or whatever. And like, there's a paragraph. Is it indeed, laughed Gildor. Elves seldom give unguarded advice. Advice is a dangerous gift to give. Yada, yada, yada. He goes on to say, now you should be grateful for I do not give counsel gladly as if like these hobbits, these little wander travelers should be grateful that Gildor, this high mighty elf, has even stopped and given them time of day to even talk to them. That that they're so good that you should be grateful that I've even acknowledged you mm-hmm. and your existence. Sort of my interpretation from from that. Yeah, I think that's typical elf talk. Right. We heard I forget his name already, but the dude in our last episode, we were talking about the way some elven kings have spoken to dwarven smiths and uh, you know with a haughtiness. Yeah, and this haughtiness. is also this is also like when they're in Lo, uh Lothlorien, the elves that are like, Well, Gimli, like you're you have to be blindfolded, we've let you go so far. Like these are the rules. And also Gladriel's husband, yeah. who was like basically like, You're you're an animal, Gimli, yeah. shut up and Yeah. And they're like, We've already bent the rules more than right. we normally do, right? That gets uh gets back to this notion of uh that Oster Osterhamel's notion about convinced of their own superiority and their ordained mandate to rule. Yep. That's the haughtiness in elves. Yes. They always assume that they are ordained to rule. Which is interesting because their land, their original, their indigenous land is way over the Western Sea. Well, it's somewhere... it's not, that's not their indigenous land. Their indigenous land is, is Middle Earth. They were invited. That is their indigenous. Yeah, land. they were invited to leave and come. So, but then they left. They left and came back. Then they came back. But yep. then they're all leaving again. Mm-hmm. They're leaving yeah. Middle Earth. So in in the Rings of Power, that show that you haven't seen, it's they're talking about the Second Age and this war. It seems like they're living in a different place and they're coming back to fight Morgoth, Sauron, and they're like, well, now I have to go back to the place where we aren't living to control it and they sure, set up yeah. watchtowers and military positions to rule to like be on guard for thousands of years yeah i don't know it's like they, a military occupation 
Yeah, all, no one, no one comes back from Valinor in the Second Age in in Tolkien, as far as I know. But um, I can't speak to the show. But the coming and going thing is colonial thinking, right? Like there is a notion of being a being a warder, warden of an area that is not really. You're not trying to stay there. You just need to keep it together there because there's something there that you need right. to extract still. Then that's get those gotta get those yeah. jewels back. Got to get that all that mithril out. <laughs> yep, and I want to talk about mithril in terms of supremacy too. Mm-hmm. Word. Um, okay, this is a good time for that mithril quote. Uh, well, mithril is it about thing. is it about elves or is it about Numenor or is it it's about a, no? It's about mithril and the value of it. So when Gandalf, they're in they're in Moria. Uh, they mention the mithril coat, and Gimli's like, oh, that's a kingly gift in- indeed. And Gandalf says, uh, page 357 of The Fellowship, and he said like something, I didn't tell Bilbo, but, quote, its worth was greater than the value of the whole Shire and everything in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so this, this thing that want, like an elven prince was made for an elven prince long ago, like a child because it's small, is made of mithril, and it's worth more than this whole section of land, every material thing in it, and the people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their lives? Yep, that's definitely a... Uh, for one little coat that a elven prince wears. Yep, that's For not his whole life. Right? That's definitely a colonizer mindset. Mm. The point is to uh, reduce stuff to economic value. Right. Um... That's definitely economic. Whereas, like, people can't be reduced to economic value inherently. Right. Yeah. It's remember, not as easy as... Yeah, good. So there was this... I was listening to this radio uh, story somewhere that this guy was wrongfully imprisoned for, like, 20 years. 20 years, 30 years, whatever. He went in... Maybe he was 20. Maybe maybe it was 40 years he was in. And he's out when he's 60 or something. And they're like, sorry, we were wrong with DNA testing. Yeah, it turns some- out you were innocent the whole time. Uh, we're going to have a settlement. Here's, like... 20 million dollars maybe it was more than that maybe it was 60 million and some people are like oh yeah that should be fine i mean that's like more than a million dollars that's like what a great what a great thing but they asked like then they asked the question like how much is enough to compensate for that time and he's like there's there is no compensation it doesn't doesn't matter because you lose your whole like you lose the your whole youth your whole prime of life and you're forced to comply in this horrible system of prison so you can't make up for it by just paying your way out yeah so one takeaway that i'm getting from this is that the equation of a human life or even even stuff to a to a number of money a money number that's a colonizer mindset and it's imposed by a minority it's not the inherent majority position we don't inherently as human beings think that it's just a mindset, and it's a colonizer mindset. It, mm. it takes as it takes as um, foundational the notion that the area is an economic, like it's just a, a, a thing from which to extract value. The worth and value are monetary, yeah, are money. and that they can be calculated, like, and yeah. it's like what we use now is paper money but yes. like it doesn't mean anything but oh well, we backed it up with gold but like what is gold the mean? implication you can't eat that yeah, either the implication being that all of this is rational because the colonizer is rational 
but it's not rational because it's um, it's a minority position. It's all kind of made up. It's not. It's not inherently like uh, it's not a it's, it's not, not a human. default human position. Right. Okay. Which is refreshing to know that that it's not inherent. We can get out of that mindset. Numenorean supremacy. Um, I don't know. We've talked a bit about it before. The big signifiers of it in Lord of the Ring, right, are the automatic assumption by everyone that Aragorn is the rightful king because of his lineage. You feel me? Right. Aragorn, he's, yeah. he's descended from Isildur. Yeah, and I only have one quote that points to the supremacy of the Numenorians in relation to the indigenous people of Middle-earth. Uh, and I will mention that, but I see you're looking through your notes. Yeah, so I have I have things to mention about Numenorians and in that way, like men. Um, what do you mean men? Men... Because as in, like not, the race of men as opposed to the race of elves or the race right, of dwarves. Right, but not all men are Numenorians. That's right. an important distinction, I think, that I'm trying right. to make. I think all the quotes I have are, are Numenorean or relating to others. People from Gondor, they're, they're descended from Numenorean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gondor the is the, the what's, what remains of a Numenorean uh, colonizer right. state, right? The other thing that's tricky about Numenor as a colonizer state is that the island of Numenor, the imperial capital is destroyed so there is no return you can never go back to London it's gone mm. right you're stranded in the new world that makes uh, and the new world is the old world because your people thousands of years ago came from there because the Numenorians were given Numenor by the gods they're like you know the righteous few men from the first age so that's how that goes down right in so the if, first they're given, age, if they're given Numenor, Numenor by the gods did the gods take it away yeah, they through, did. Like, they, through a you'll, flood. You'll find out when you finish your Amazon show. All right, so there's a couple of like easy physical supremacy things where it starts with Strider in The Prancing Pony where he's talking to he's talking to Frodo, he's talking about the ring and he says on page 194 of Fellowship, if I was after the ring, I could have it now. And he stands up and like, like why is he so aggressive like that? <laughs> and he's like threatening for like, if I wanted it, I could take yeah, it. Yeah. I am physically superior to you. And like, ordained. Bor- he's yeah, ordained. He's ordained. He's the rightful king. Uh, Boromir does the same, like the same thing at the end of the book. Like, I think it's the breaking of the fellowship where he's like, it, it should be mine. It, it, like, give it to me. And he tries to take the ring from. He does try to take it. At which point, Frodo puts it on and slips away invisibly. Mm-hmm. And Faramir also in the Two Towers does a similar thing. So, like these these Numenorean descendants are all like, "Yo, little Hobbit halfling dude, like, we're better than you. We could take it from you. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna." But like we could, and Faramir like stands up as soon as he learns what it was. It got all weird. It got tense. Sam and Frodo stood up, put their backs against the wall, put their hands on their sword hilts, being like, "Is this guy going to come after us?" All the other talking in the cave stopped. They all looked over, like, "What's this tense thing going over on over there, Faramir?" You know. So what you're talking about reminds me of a supremacist model that both you and I are very familiar with. It gets spoken of 
infrequently and it's the sort of adult child supremacist model mm. what you just described is very much like the way um a flustered reactionary teacher can behave when fronted on i can you know i am ultimately the one in charge here and i can my will is law whereas yours is not right i'm doing you a service by not being aggressive and taking or doing or imposing. Right. right. I you could know. take your phone by all right. I could give you detention. bring up the phone, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it did flash through my mind, but because phones are tricky because they're not some sort of liberatory device. But yeah, right. yeah. I mean like... Uh, you but know, I could give you detention and make you stay for yeah. like take 30 minutes of your time after school. Even if that's not true, the notion of or being ordained to rule. Yeah. And also the cowardice of it too, the anxiety that underlies such a move in the classroom. Mm. Because one feels so threatened your by own the di- in, your own vulnerability and insecurities. Yeah, so threatened by the dynamic that one feels like they need to fall back into their ordainment rather than the condition of the situation. There's a real situation happening between two people and rather than confront it and the differentials there, I'll fall back on this legalistic notion that I'm ordained to rule. Uh, like in loco parentis, also like yeah, I've had, yeah. I have a master's degree of education. Sure. I know more than you yep. do. I know what's better for you. Oh snap! That's the next. That's the next and quote. In elementary school, that also we it has the same um, size differential that we're seeing in this book. They're men, you know, six feet tall or whatever, and these hobbits are like four foot two. So Faramir also does this thing. Let me find the quote here. Uh, this is in the Two Towers. This is in the same scene. Well, no, this isn't before. This is Two Towers, page 311, where he's Faramir's talking to Frodo and Sam, and he says, I will decide what is best for me to do and for you. I will, I will decide what's best for me, and I will decide what's best for you. Mm. You do not have autonomy. I have power over you yeah child i'm the patron yeah mm-hmm. you're my ward this is like mother knows best father knows best teacher knows best yep okay and these are these are new these are adjacent to the numenorian concerns Cause, yeah because they are of right. numenorian descent they're of that culture i've got one quote about numenorian supremacy in contrast to the behavior of the indigenous people of Middle Earth, but you've got something else. This is this oh. is gonna the one that I've got. It's gonna move us into some talk about uh, other stuff. So I wanna I got another one from about Faramir. This whole thing. So Faramir, as he's talking with Sam and Frodo, he says, "I know what's best for you. I will decide." He said, "I could take the ring. I do have physical dominance and superiority. I could do that, but I won't." And then. And Sam, like, at some one point, Sam becomes very humble. He starts begging, like, oh, please, Fer- Mr. Faramir, sure, sir, yeah, don't yeah. don't take the ring. Show your quality. This is a chance to prove your quality. So when Faramir doesn't do these things, like, he gets this praise from Sam. Yeah, yeah. Like, you have shown your quality, quote, the very highest. Like, you have shown, sup- like, the supreme You've demonstrated quality, why you're supreme. Even yeah. though you have, like 
taken us prisoner, captured us, moved us here against our will. We didn't want to go with you, but you put, you blindfolded us. You moved us here. You threatened us with your posturing. And that is the highest quality. Yeah. You know, what's, what's wild about this is that the same dynamic exists between Sam and Gollum. Gollum with the like good master stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? The begging and the bowing and the scraping and the groveling in order to gain uh, favor with a character called Master. Right. And Sam, in his arbitrary tyranny, you know, lording it over Gollum occasionally. Now in the now in the uh, in the in the same position uh, or in the inverse position with Faramir. Right. Passing on that. So that's another thing about this. The passing on of supremacy models and uh, the passing on of abuse models. So another thing about Faramir, I'm going to go to the text here. This is a little more, it's not as direct a quote. Page 314, the window in the west. This is the bottom paragraph on 314. He He's mentioning slaves, he's mentioning the white tree. So... There's a beautiful queen among other queens, not a mistress of not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. So he brings us the idea that slaves can be willing, like willingly enslaved, like better for being slaves. And this, this is Faramir. Like, this is Faramir who's saying he, this. Who's he talking about? I don't really know. I mean, I found this and I just like came out and I'm like, what? I know, like, weird. That is like that's some Ibermex Kendi shit. That's some stamped. That's some like. There's simulationists. There's anti-racist. Like that's like definite racist, shit right there. Willing slave. That a slave that you can yeah, it's like a, that's a person a can be enslaved right. and be so do so willingly and be better for being a slave. Sure. Yeah. Willing this, and this notion right. still exists today. That all yeah you know we did like the master and slaves in America were like the slaves were often better off for it they were treated as family yeah once again a colonizer mindset i'm not going to synthesize what the indigenous population actually thinks i'm going to impose a notion of my ordained supremacy on the world on my understanding of the world and so but i do want to know who he's talking about because it's one of our mysterious you know fewer than 10 female characters He's using she, right? He's using she. He was also talking about they're talking he's alluding to the ring before he know it knows it exists and he says, "But fear no more, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway, not where Minas Tirith fa- falling in ruin and I alone could save her." So, using the weapon of the dark lord for her for her good and my glory, no, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo son of Drogo. Neither did the council, said Frodo, nor do I. I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree in flower again in the courts of the kings, and the, the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Anor, again as of old, full of light, fair and high, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves." War must be while we defend our lives. Not against, even a kind. Not mystery. even. He does. So maybe he, this is like. Maybe so this Faramir is some won't even. Faramir won't even accept that condition. Right. He's talking about Minas Arnor. Minas right? Arnor. So yeah. he's saying, "I want it to. I want it to be 
deslavified. So maybe that's like this like this anti-racist theory from Faramir, but like it shows that that idea of willing slaves exists within Numenorean. But maybe it's not. Faramir seems to maybe not be favoring in this in this particular moment. He He seems to. It's almost like that's one of one of Sauron's moves is to make quote willing slaves people who believe their will I mean because such a condition of uh, psychological enslavement um, often people don't know they've been psychologically manipulated until after the event right in cults and such (laughs) so you know in the cult of Sauron people might perceive themselves as being cooperating when in retrospect they realize they were psychologically enslaved I'm going to make one of like I'm going to make a reference to one of your favorite topics like that willing like psychological thing of cell phones like you're willingly participate but you're roped into this thing and they get you to come the phone Mm -hmm. gets you to like turn it on a hundred times a day and like come back to it and come back to it and that's control it's controlling that's psychological control that's the brave new world dystopia versus the orwellian uh 1984 dystopia in the huxley edition you like it <laughs> you like being a beta or an alpha or whatever and you like um doing soma and uh doing all this to having this stuff right and in 1984 you are scared of your government and you fear them and you submit and but you they're don't both do it. they're no, well, you don't, right, you don't, you don't do what those. they say not to do. You don't know, you don't have any benefits. Right. Um, you just have coercion. But you have co- coercion either way. It's like the stick and the carrot. The stick is 1984, and the carrot is Brave New World. The, right. the notion of a willing slave, which is oxymoronic, that's a that's a carrot dystopia. Yeah. Um, but this idea of, like, the willing slave in... in I mean, it seems to exist in Numenorean culture passed down because Faramir talks, he mentions it. Sure. It's the only time it's It's mentioned. It's in his vocabulary. Right. So let's go to the two towers, the road to Isengard, page 174. The narrator's describing um, Isengard and the tower and the, the area surrounding it. This is while it's occupied by Sauron, while he's using it to engage and produce weapons of war, Sauron has enslaved people who are working there. He's got orcs working there. He doesn't trust the orcs to be on guard, I believe, so he has men on guard. But this is a paragraph on that page describing Isengard. Many houses there were, chambers, halls, and passages, cut and tunneled back into the walls upon their inner side, so that all the open circle was overlooked by countless windows and dark doors. Thousands could dwell there. Workers, servants, slaves, and warriors with great store of arms. Wolves were fed and stabled in deep dens beneath. So what struck me was the fact that slaves is just like thrown in there so casually. So thousands could dwell there, including slaves, sort of like if you tour a plantation where like a plantation in the south of the United States you might be like, oh, over here are the barns, and this is where the, the livestock were grown. And on the right, you can, like, through the woods, out of sight, there are the slave quarters. But look at the lovely architecture of this, like, the manor house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's just casually mentioned. But, so slaves can dwell there. It doesn't mention that only, it doesn't say Sauron. Sauron is enslaving this, people in this right. room. It doesn't say that. So, like, were there slave quarters? Did slaves live there? in Numenorean times. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good... It's vague. 
it's unclear. The question, broadly speaking, is did the Numenorians have an enslavement model as right. part of their economic social structure? That's a question. Yeah, and I don't know. But the answer for a lot of cultures like Numenor is yeah. <laughs> right? In real world. In the real world. In the real world. Yeah. Um, okay, Whether it's I, explicit slaves or like economic exploitation. Yeah. The, and sla- I mean, this- you can also see the World Cup stadiums in Qatar that were just built last year. What about them? What about them? They were built with a lot of imported labor. Oh yeah, yeah. And the, the they that labor those people were not treated well. A lot of people died. Sure. And let's also just bring it back to the U.S. We you, we have people in in penitentiaries making stuff. There you go. Um, out on the highway working. Yep. So I have a couple more quotes that I want to mention with Numenor before we move on. So Fellowship of the Ring, page two forty seven. They say the race of kings from over the sea. The great people, the men of the West. This is, and this is the great people versus on the next page referring to men as the big people. So the race of kings are inherently great. This is what we can take away. On page 274 of Fellowship, they were talking about the blood of the Numenorians became mingled with that of lesser men, mm-hmm. implying that mm-hmm. Numenorians are better than your average men. Um, also, you have the Dunedain, who are also descended from Numenor. They live much longer than, quote-unquote, lesser men. Yes. So there's like this genetic thing, a little problematic in my view. Um, but You know, it's the genetic thing that's the problem because uh, the counter, like the reactionary counterpoint to all this stuff is like, oh, it's a heroic novel. And so you need someone like Aragorn to be the vessel of our feelings of greatness and heroism. And he has to, by dint of him being a hero, he has to be in a minority position. He's unique. He's, a, he's unique among men, right? That, on a psychological, emotional, you know, inspirational level isn't problematic until it becomes a genetic concern, a genetic political concern. Like if all the characters are projections of our internal psyche, like I want to move from lesser man to great man. That's like the heroic influence that this book could have on me. But it could also have a more, that's like the medicine I can take from this book. And the poison I can take from this book is that that greatness is genetic and that it differentiates individual men from other men mm. rather than the individual heroic me from the lesser me. We also have a tendency, and this connects with an idea I got from a Hidden Brain episode um, about gender. This was years ago that it came out. I don't remember what it was, but I've recommended it to some students. But in that podcast, Hidden Brain, that episode... They were talking about Jamie Shute and the first non-binary person to be recognized as non-binary in Oregon on the driver's license. No gender assigned. So whatever that episode was, in it, there was a, they said something like, we often take th- that we assume that the way things are are the way things are meant to be or should yeah, be. Yeah. So the way things are, like, Aragorn is good because he's genetically superior. Numenorians are better because like they live longer, therefore they're better. 
therefore like as a reader maybe i take away that well the people in power are in power because they yeah are superior yes this is the way it should be i'll just like be complacent compliant unquestioning and i'll just bend like have them tell me what to do and give them all control yeah that's that's the psyop of hierarchy in general there it is it's a it's a trick being played by a minority on a majority (sighs) yeah so the last quote for this like for the that i have for numenorians is a parallel to the mithril coat and this is in the two towers page 125 this is when they're going to rohan they're going into the the great hall they have to leave their weapons at the door they go in gandalf says at one point when they're inside he says weapon he's referring to the weapons that legolas aragorn gimli have left outside with the guard he's i'm not sure he's talking to like a, one of the guards inside one of the rohirrim men of rohan he says weapons they have laid at your doors that are worth many a mortal man even the mightiest so again there's this idea of like value and worth like this object mm-hmm. is worth more than the lives and experiences of many men even the mightiest of men. and that's gandalf again gandalf Man, says he's this. hung up on mithril huh is it mithril is it it's not it's yeah. not mithril this is a uh, aragorn's sword that was reforged this is the sword mm-hmm. that was broken elendil is that what it is Alendil. Alendil. Heir of Alendil. Uh, yeah, I thought you said Alendil's a person. No, oh, yeah, Alendil's a, a person. What the hell is the name of the sword? Yeah, I know the sword's got a name. But. It's got a name. <laughs> Whatever that name is, it's not coming to me. Like that sword, Legolas's bow, bow that was given from Galadriel, uh, Dwarven Axes. Narsil? Shards of Narsil, but it's reforged and it has a different name. Does it really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> He's got to renames it. That's funny. Got to um, get a... Osiris got to stay Osiris. When you get put back together, we're gonna do a text. Don't do here. it! Don't do it! Are you ready for the answer? Mm-hmm. Andoril. Andoril is Narsil. Andoril is Narsil was broken and was reforged into Andoril. Word. So those are my quotes. The last. It's, quotes it's interesting for- to me that Gandalf is so hung up on equating metals to human human lives and worth um i don't know what that's about yeah and they're both gandalf what's up with that gandalf why so capitalistic why so yeah why is he so into materialistic yeah, why is he so into stuff maybe he's just delighted that stuff exists because he's like in he's in an incarnation Okay, so I I got I I want to mention this one thing that we've mentioned before on the uh probably on the evil episode. And uh it's a scene from the two towers. Um and I think it highlights Numenorean supremacy and the notion that Numenorean men are ordained to rule over the indigenous people of Middle-earth. Uh but it's going to pivot us into kind of broad global racial especially in the west uh like complexion stuff like white supremacy white supremacy stuff european supremacy stuff specifically in contrast to africa asia the so-called new world non-european nations melanin melanin yeah yeah two towers ballantines 395 they're at the crossroads frodo sees 
quote, beyond an arch of boughs, the road to Osgiliath running almost as straight as a stretched ribbon down, down into the west. There, far away, beyond sad Gondor, now overwhelmed in shade, the sun was sinking, finding at last the hem of the great slow-rolling pall of clouds and falling in an ominous fire toward the yet unsullied sea. The brief glow fell upon a huge sitting figure, still and solemn as the great stone kings of Argonath. The years had gnawed it, and violent hands had maimed it. Its head was gone, and in its place was set in mockery a round, rough-hewn stone, rudely painted by savage hands in the likeness of a grinning face with one large red eye in the midst of its forehead. Upon its knees and mighty chair and all about the pedestal were idle scrawls mixed with the foul symbols that the maggot folk of mortar used. We've been through that quote before, and uh, and that giant stone figure is presumably a Numenorean king mm-hmm. or a Gondor king. It says it's like the stat, the kings of Argonath, right? What I just read, and and I, I don't profess to know this stuff, but in during one of the breaks, I was looking in Robert Foster's guide, and Argonath is stones of the kings, the carved rocks at the upper end of the chasm at the northern entrance to Nenhithoel on Anduin, the two immense and awesome statues of Isildur and Anarion. Uh, viewers of the film will know this, I'm sure. Uh, the two giant statues on the Anduin. Yeah. So this statue arms, is like... Arms outright, like, stretched out in as, like, saying stop. I, I guess, In yeah. the books, they have axes, I believe. Okay. This statue is like those, but not the same. Yeah. But either way, so... Um, this is a this is an artifact of a colonizer state. Someone showed up and said this type of person is the king here and they created a giant statue to remind the world of who the supreme was. I'm also reminded of the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I don't know if you know that poem but we don't need to recite the whole thing right here but uh you know traveler in the desert sees these this broken down statue all destroyed and the irony is that at the, the bottom of the statue it says um, I am Ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair you know um, Ozymandias statue is meant to signal that Ozymandias' reign is supreme and eternal and it's been <laughs> broken down been broken down by time in the yep. poem and in in this scene, broken down presumably by orcs, um, or maybe men, uh, people in the region, adjacent to Mortar, aligned with Sauron, who chose to de you know decapitate the statue. We're seeing similar things happen in the U.S. Right, where statues are being torn down, removed. Um, yeah, and there's because they're be, because they're regarded as symbols of supremacy. Right, right, and so they're being removed democratically. You, I mean, I guess you could argue that it's a conspiracy or whatever, but in some cases, human, you know, people are are roping them down. Um, the book that we're talking about, The Lord of the Rings, presents that as a real defam as a real defamation of a divinely ordained ruler. But from our contemporary twenty twenty three perspective, it feels a little bit more like a democratic decision. To you know, to take down a statue. Does that make sense? 
The book depicts the, the the enemies of the statue are the bad guys in this book. I mean, but, the, the the maggot folk. They're also referred yeah. to as savages. Yeah, savage yeah. hands, yep. which and like crudely painted mm-hmm. mockery. Yep. So it's mockery. It's crudely painted. Yeah. It's not meant as like it's not like it's not portrayed as a parody. What, it's prevented. Uh, what do you mean it's not portrayed as a parody? It's not called like oh this is a parody of the statue that was. This is mockery. Yeah, it sounds like they did kind of parody Par- it by putting a new head on. Right, but, so it um, could be parody, which is more of an art form, but mockery is right. less acceptable. And mockery is also the perspective of the colonizer. Like, why are you yeah. mocking me? Right. So there's this nuanced part. Like, this is going back to R.F. Kuang and, like the, like, the complexity of this book is that Tolkien presents... He's presenting this as like this is was how terrible is this maybe maybe this is terrible that it was like defaced in mockery of the statue but he also admits that the statue has been worn down with time so it's already kind of on its way out in decline right yeah. it's in decline so I want to read speaking of that thing of the time I want to read from the Hobbit riddles in the dark one of my favorite riddles that Gollum says this thing all things devours birds beast trees flowers gnaws iron bites steel grinds hard stones to meal slays kings ruins towns and beats high mountain down mhm uh it sounds like so what i'm trying to convey here is that Tolkien seems to carry into the vision of Middle Earth accidentally. I don't know that it's intentional per se or whatever. A notion that the colonized are savage, yeah, and that they're dangerous, and that then and when they uh, when they are auto- when they act autonomously, it's uh, it's degraded. It degrades the conditions of living for everyone. Yeah. And and what you just pointed out with that other quote is that he seems to also have an acceptance that beauty is fleeting and uh you know there there's a there's a sunset to empire and um things end. So that's interesting that he can accept the dominance of time or the the like the uh the ultimate you're going to say the supremacy of time. I was about to say the <laughs> supremacy of time. But he can't accept the supremacy of of democracy or whatever, mm. <laughs> right? Like the people, when the people tear down the statue, it's vulgar and it's something to be stopped. But when time tears down everything, that's just the kind of uh, melancholy tragedy of of life. Ah, c'est la vie, hein? The other, so good. With I want to talk about the idea of art. I went to art school. I studied art history. Part of art history, there's this whole thing called primitive art. Mm-hmm. And it's called primitive, and usually it's looking at African art, um, art of like the third world or whatever. And maybe it's like rustic, maybe it's whatever, but it's presented as like, oh, this is primitive. It's not as refined. It's not as good. So like, there's something inherently troubling about that whole about the presentation. There's also. There's a good a good piece that I really appreciate from John Oliver in last week's night about museums and they have gone and they've taken art uh statues etc from 
places that they've colonized, places that they've conquered. And they've done that like pretty explicitly. They've taken over places with military might to take their artistic artifacts. They've got like bronzes from a place in Africa, which they're beautiful. And they're like, oh, I love, you know, these are wonderful. These are great. Like how, like how wonderful are they? We're taking care of them. And the, the countries are like, give these things back. And they're even doing it with, um, with, Gre- uh, with Greece. They took most of them. And the country's like, can you give those back, please? And they're like, no. I mean, they took a lot of things from Egypt. And the one of the curators' argument being, we need to see evidence from you that you will take as good care of these statues yeah. as we do. Right. And that's the ultimate parent-state notion of empire and colonialism there was a there's they were interviewing some people about this and one person explicitly said referring to the sculptures from the from the parthenon in athens and there's this wonderful athens the the acropolis museum where there's this whole recreation of like scale model of the acropolis where you can see the bas-relief carvings and a lot a lot of places just have a plaster copy because the originals in the Imperial Museum in England and this this person who was interviewed said well we will we would return these we're like we're not going to return these until like if because they can't take care of their own works they don't know what they have mm-hmm. and we're taking better care of them than they do and that was just like oh excuse me that's very mm-hmm. much like we know what's best yeah, and and those those notions might come after a historical or political notion of supremacy, right? The precondition for such a thinking could be the English are superior to the blank, right? And therefore, the rest, the, of the way world. we do things is better. So if we, so for example, statues aren't necessary. I don't. This is hard to talk about. It is a it is a person's choice, a people's choice what they want to do with their national art. Um, If they want to transform it, if they want to let it decay, if they want to tear it down, if they want to um, enshrine it, if, you know, um, an invader doesn't make those aesthetic choices. And there's also, uh, there's, ISIS has also taken over places and they have willingly just like destroyed statues from history, like thousands thousands year old statues they've just destroyed it because they're like these are icons these are things that you should not worship well, they should not exist you know we'll it's interesting them. it's interesting because that what you just said could be used as an argument for colonial action by the west in you know like the MENA region um, be, because look at the, these people are going right. to destroy their own statues right. if we don't if we don't invade and yep. like yeah so we need to invade and like take over and yep. kill people to preserve these statues. So yeah, and in Middle Earth, the point is the orcs and the wild men um, in the mortar region, they just can't like they can't appreciate art. <laughs> Although it's possible Frodo can't appreciate their art because they didn't ask for the statue of the Numenorean king to be planted there. What they did was tear its head off and replace it with something else. Right. Um, which is going to happen. That's what people do. People do stuff like that with community art. That's sure. Like, you know, so we, and we talked about it before. There's echoes of the graffiti concern here too. Mm-hmm. Idle scrawls, mm-hmm. right? The notion that the, the poor person's art, which is, which is um, an act of artistic will imposed on a surface that was not asked for. 
I did not ask for concrete to be here. Um, mm-hmm. That that is evil, and good is whatever the you know whatever the colonizer state puts up and does. Des- I- to destroy an oil refinery is an act of sabotage and terrorism, but to put up an oil, you know to to destroy an ecosystem locally with an oil refinery to run a is, pipeline through right. sacred land yeah that is that's an act of uh tech of the colonizer I mean, this, it's necessary tech who cares about your sacred land we need this oil to run right self so self-ordained it, it doesn't like if it and it, maybe it breaks and goes into your like your water supply but whatever you're not important people yeah. the colonizer needs no justification in order to put a statue up but the colonized in this particular case would seem to need, you know, like there, no defense at all is going to um, exonerate them for tearing the head off the statue and replacing it with a, with something else. Right. Okay. In that quote, ma- the maggot people and like, you know, vermin, I don't, there's no vermin in that quote, but those are just classic exterminationist characterizations of the other in our world. We see that language over and over again. So Tolkien's use of maggot here is really... Uh, reminiscent of ways that people historically have referred to other people when they think of them as lesser and capable of being exterminated because maggots are a thing that humans tend to exterminate or or try to keep away from themselves in middle earth there's a there's a massive problem with like certain kinds of people being understood as not having any rights and needing to be exterminated or removed or or uh, or confined and those are mostly those are mostly orcs Right, we're going to talk about orcs as people in this in this episode. Yep, and and also they have consciousness. The, yep, uh, and they speak some of several of them are bilingual, right? They speak common, and they speak and their they own speak Orcish they tongue. speak the black tongue, right? Uh, is, it, is that what it's called, or is that uh, Orcish is different? Than, was yeah, like okay, what they speak, they speak Orcish. Could be some of them might be trilingual, then some of them, you know. But it is referred that the black tongue is referred to as uncouth. Yeah, they're crafty people. They're like not. Um, they're pretty close to elves and dwarves and all them in terms of cognition. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're yeah. there. And even the notion that they're dumber is part of a supremacy model, right? Um, right. Because there's no evidence on the ground of that. There's just a notion that we could defend that. Well, ooh, orcs are right. Anyways, it doesn't just apply to orcs. Um, it applies to the Easterlings mm-hmm. and more specifically to the Southrons. The okay. Haradrim, yep. the cruel Haradrim, as it were, and it's unfortunate, but it is the deal that 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 um, othering of those people, in contrast to the Numenorean men and the elves, is pigmentation. Right, the orcs are are widely regarded as dark skinned, and so are the are the Haradrim, and that leans on long standing notions in Tolkien's world and in my world of. Uh, a white supremacy model versus a black um, other, and I want to ground that in a couple a couple real world things, and then talk about how it shows up in uh, in Middle Earth. So, you've read The Great Gatsby? I read it once, yeah, outside this, of school. This character, a distasteful character named Tom Buchanan, in chapter two, um, who drop casually mentions this racist thing that he's pursuing academically. He's like, uh, he's like, have you read this book, The Rise of the Colored Empires, by this man Goddard? And uh, it's a it's a book 
about how uh, you know the so-called Nordic races have to. Uh, this is like 1925, right? When the book is being published, it takes place in I think 1920, 1921. Yeah, Roaring Twenties. 1922, maybe. Uh, I should know off the top of my head. You know, it's, it's a high point for eugenics and for uh, and for racism, I would say, in Europe and in and in America. Um, the notion of this fictional book is that the so-called Nordics are the creators of high civilization, and they have to defend the planet against um, a rising tide of uh, people of color. That book that's fictional inside The Great Gatsby is modeled on a book from real life called uh, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. That's a, that's a, mm. that's a book from 1920 by a guy named Lothrop Stoddard. So Goddard's Rise of the Stoddard Color Empire. Stoddard instead of Goddard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an uh, illusion, basically. Yeah, I, very it's close. almost like maybe he was not, maybe he was afraid of, of, uh, Libel, like maybe uh, Fitzgerald is anxious about libel in the book, and that's why he he. It's like calling, um, alluding to Facebook, but you can't say Facebook, so you say friend face. Sure, yeah, yeah, right. Um, anyways, I haven't read the Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, so I don't know, I don't know what it is. Um, but it reminds me of this other thing that Carl Jung claims that Sigmund Freud said to him in 1910. When they were starting to fall out and Carl Jung starting to drift away from Freud, Freud says to him, promise me never to abandon... The quote that I got from the New York Times is that he said, promise me never to abandon the sexual theory, namely my teachings. Freud's teaching about the nature of the subconscious. Don't abandon it. I guess in favor of like an archetype theory or like a spiritual theory. Mm. Um, Jung reports Freud saying, we must make a dogma of it an unshakable bulwark and then Jung asked a bulwark against what and Freud says against the black tide of mud of occultism his point being plausibly or ostensibly that we have to uphold the sexual theory of subconscious against the tide like a, a like a, a occultism a, he's anxious that like a spiritism or a notion of like uh, a notion of divinity or some other thing that's kind of not sciencey is going to creep in, and that's like a sci- that's like a scientific concern. But the language he uses is initially the black tide of mud, and it so for for Freud, this is a dude who, you know, <laughs> he's trying to talk about how when people say things, they're kind of saying something else. His anxiety is is remarkably similar to the rising tide of color against white world supremacy mm. this black tide of mud and all the th- you know like pr- what you referred to earlier is primitive art uh and like primitivism this anxiety of uh what's the what's the, like this atavistic thing this anxiety that europe and empire has that it's gonna turn back into the thing that it's trying to make other and that is in the 20th century, in the 19th century, for Europeans, um, that other is Asia and Africa and the indigenous New World, right? I think. Okay, sure. So this is also, um, I think, Kendi talks about this in Stamped from the Beginning, but there are also direct parallels in Lord of the Rings where there's that association with like the word black with bad things, and we use the word black for people of color 
um, Fellowship of the Ring, it's black like eight page eighty eighty four is black like eighty five is black chap. Um, they're smelling. This is othering. Um, on page one fifteen, black figures. This is all black for the Nazgul, black yeah. riders mm-hmm. versus Gandalf, who's a who's a hero, who's the white rider. Uh, page one seventy six. There's the a squint eyed, ill favored fellow. So yeah, we'll we're talking get back, about like we'll get back at him right. in a minute. Yeah. So these things are coming out. Um, Sauron has a black staff. Gandalf has a white staff. These are our words, and I think uh, Kendi in his in his book refers to the, like uses the word blackguard, which is spelled blackguard. Blackguard, right? Right. So it's, that's someone who's not good. You don't like a blackguard. You blackguard. You bad person. You. Right. So it's like those associations become maybe some conscious inherent. Yeah. Um, and the Freudian that, slips. And the notion that we have to create a bulwark. So Freud uses that word bulwark against the against the black tide of mud right. of occultism. Right. But you know what? You know what? A student a student gave me the the phrase years ago: "No mud, no lotus." Yeah, you used that on this podcast recently. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, that's an essential notion to being healthy. Sweetest sweeter with a bite of the bitter as well. So let me just finish this bulwark thing. Because um, on page 322 of The Fellowship of the Ring in the Council of Elrond, uh, this is Boromir. He says, Believe not that in the land of Gondor the blood of Numenor is spent, nor all its pride and dignity forgotten. By our valor the wild folk of the east are still restrained, the terror of Morgul kept at bay, and thus alone our peace and freedom maintained in the lands behind us, bulwark of the west. Gondor is the bulwark of the west, the thing that stands between the black tide of mud and <laughs> high civilization. And it's what's curious is that he... He has the gall to use the words peace and freedom as the thing to describe the thing that they're defending, and their defense of it is through continual antagonism of a potentially of a majority population, right? Potentially of a majority population of orcs, Southrons, Easterlings. Yeah, and yeah, and wild men even, right? Like he's, that's pretty much everyone but a citizen of Gondor and the, the wild men who live in the mountains between Rohan yeah. and. Gondor. I haven't done a census, right? So I right. can't I can't say who's in a minority or who's in a majority. Right, but it's I unknown. Can, but I can say that our definitions have said that colonialism and the colonial mindset depends on a minority rule of a majority population. That's yeah. I mean it's not it's not really unknown because Mordor and like the allies there are hosts and hosts yeah, of them. Yeah. And Mordor can afford to lose a host more easily than Gondor can afford to lose a company. Yeah. And Bormer speaks not as a Gondor citizen, but as the son of the steward, right? He he wouldn't even know if the people in his own city felt peace and freedom. He speaks he's just that's pure ideology because he doesn't he's not living that life. He's privileged. Right. I mean, yeah, and he's got a lot of responsibilities, right? He is the 1%. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, the, and he the and stewards, his dad still find things to complain about, you know? Right. So the stewards are also essentially the rulers of Gondor for years, generations, who knows how long, going yep. back to Isildur or whenever the king departed. I'm assuming that's like Isildur's time. But the stewards know that they're not the king, but they are the rulers. 
Mm-hmm. But they're also living with this anxiety that maybe the king will come back one day. But even in, in the in the realm of Gondor, it'll, you could be a steward for 10,000 years and not be king. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about um, the Black Tongue mm-hmm. and a little bit about the Haradrim. And then, uh, and then I and then I think we should talk about women. Okay. So Gandalf again at Elrond's place. Ah, three thirty-three, Ballantines, Fellowship of the Ring. He uh, he pronounces the, uh, the the what the ring says. Ash Nags, they're about to look. Ash Nags, right? He pronounces right. that out loud. And it says the change in the wizard's voice was astounding. Suddenly it became menacing, powerful, harsh as stone. A shadow seemed to pass over the high sun, and the porch for a moment grew dark. All trembled, and the elves stopped their ears. Never before has any voice dared to utter words of that tongue in Imladris, Gandalf the Grey, said Elrond, as the shadow passed and the company breathed once more. And let us hope that none will ever speak it here again, answered Gandalf. Nonetheless, I do ask your pardon, Master Elrond, for if that tongue is not soon to be heard in every corner of the West, then let all put doubt aside that this thing is indeed what the wise have declared, the treasure of the enemy, fraught with all his malice, and in it lies a great path of his strength of old. Um, If that tongue is not soon to be heard in every corner of the West... His point being, you're going to hear that language all over the place if you don't act appropriately and according to my recommendations right now to destroy this ring and pursue this path. That is um, troublingly similar to things I hear people say about language in general, like languages that aren't English in, in the United States or just like foreign languages as perceived by people who don't speak more than one language. So the, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Spanish yep. and the anxiety that I'm aware uh, white folks, European folks, English speakers um, can feel when they're surrounded by people speaking Spanish uh, because it starts to seem like this country once was full of people speaking English and now all of a sudden, like if you don't start making some hard, if you don't put up a bulwark... If we don't at put up board, a wall, if we don't border, build a border wall, right, or we or 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 there's laws that require you know indoctrination and a set of dogma, um, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be Spanish. It can be I think it's Arabic and Chinese are often subject to the same anxieties, mm-hmm. and even the the dialect of English that is sometimes called African American vernacular. Uh, the influence of African American vernacular, or what used to be called ebonics, yep. on the American population at large, uh, is a source of anxiety to people sometimes. Um, and it's it's just interesting that the 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 language as a scary otherer is echoed the way that it happens in the real world is echoed in in the book. I think that's interesting that Gandalf makes that point explicit. You don't want to hear more of that language, do you? Then you better. Well, then we we got to put, put up foot. hundreds of miles of border wall because right. like they're coming in. You got to put your foot coming down. in all over the place. Yep, that thing. It also, as you read that, and the it made me think of 
the, the language is like, oh, it sounds bad, and everyone's and they stop theirs and like, oh, it sounds yucky. What a yucky sounding language. I think that's also that's often been said about the German language. Mm-hmm. So you hear someone speaking German, you're like, oh, that sounds harsh and yucky, and ooh, that's gross. But like, is do we think that's the case because of this leftover notion of World War II where Germans were the enemy? Yeah, in English speaking. For people, for speakers of English, it could go even deeper than that because English and German are, yeah. This is just we might also think speculation like, that's not. Might also think that here. Russian sounds harsh and uncouth. Yeah. Like, point, is this because yeah. we're like geopolitical em- enemies, or there has been that enmity in history or recent history? The point being, a supremacy model precedes the application of of of. Uh, it precedes the specific application. You could apply a supremacy model to anything and say, "Us equals good." they equals bad right uh i don't like the way their language sounds i don't like the way their skin looks um and from a colonial perspective that's a matter of retaining a bulwark right and separating a minority of rulers from a majority lest there be contamination or pollution which really in democratic terms might be more like cooperation um What's the word like that... Like diluting the blood with that of lesser men, diluting yes. the language or pure, beautiful yeah. language. Osterhamel, again, uh, rejecting cultural compromises with the colonized population. The colonizers are convinced of their own superiority and their ordained mandate to rule. The bulwark exists so that the minority can retain a sense of ordain, an ordained mandate. The so, ordained mandate is the minority position that's uncontaminatable, and without that, it's we're going to have to deal with democracy or, or, or anarchy or whatever. Yeah. So then, like or, that, yeah. bringing that quote of like compromise specific to language, I think of um, a movie that was made years ago called Spanglish, where it's Spanish and English combined, and like Spanish is a native, like is native to many cities in this country, and people grow up speaking Spanish. Um, L.A., for example loads of people speak Spanish in LA they speak they speak other languages in cities around this country just so like those exist and our country the United States does not have an official language Mm -hmm. there is like English is not officially the language of this country and the push which has never been successful to federalize a national language or whatever seems to be driven by a supremacist notion that English English the English language is superior to other languages. Yeah. Yeah. Even Which though is, it's even though anyone who learns English or any foreign language teacher will tell you like English is confusing. Yeah. And also anyone who loves English will tell you that the language is by um by its apparently by its nature fully permeable. It's it's very open to it takes in any word it naturalizes any any word or phrase. It just gobbles up other languages. It's like a massive, it's like a melting pot. So you're saying like... <laughs> it's not a melting pot. It's so like so it changes? Out. It evolves? The language evolves. And Dead it, ass? But it does that by absorbing things from other On languages. On moms? On jaw? For reals? I want to get at one more thing about uh, white supremacy or Eurocentricism. And that is the function of Orientalism in this book. And I don't want to get dragged down or bogged down in definitions of Orientalism. And I am in the process right now of reading Edward Said's 
classic text, Orientalism, my understanding of Orientalism is that it's a tendency for the so-called West, like Europe in particular, to define itself in contradistinction to an other that is basically the East and to generalize Eastern cultures um, and to romanticize them, sometimes sinister, in a sinister way, but not always, in a generalized way. Easy, easy example being Disney's Aladdin. It's all mixed up. India, Arabia, all the same thing, right? Jewels, mm-hmm. mystery, magic, genies in a bottle, um, the pants, the, and, and the swords. So the evidence of Orientalism and an anxiety about... And so that... And, and Orientalism has its roots in, like, probably the Crusades and also in a notion of, like, a Mongol horde or, or an empire in the East that's incomprehensible to Europeans... Orientalism in this book, uh, in the specific reference to orcs and the men of Harad as, as carrying scimitars, yeah? Yeah, and the two towers, like page six, they talk curves, they're talking about the scimitars, yeah. which are usual to orcs. And I think from my experience, I ha- I associate scimitar- curved swords um, almost exclusively with Orientalist depictions of bandits, Oriental bandits. Um, and I associate it with... Uh, people in the middle east the that being the orient in my in my generalized it. orientalist reading of that of the that symbology right curved sword equals the other straight sword equals europe yeah i mean the other being non europe yeah and per, but in specifically the east right everything east of constantinople slash east middle east istanbul arabia all of that yeah the line of scrimmage the line of scrimmage. Yeah, I often think of uh, I often think of European late Middle Age, I guess, politics as being uh, the line of scrimmage being Constantinople slash Istanbul. Mm. Okay, you know what I mean. The seat of uh, the seat of the Western Empire until it's sacked and taken by the by the Turks. Right. Which was the cap? It was the capital of Rome. Mm-hmm. Constantinople was moved from Rome to Constantinople. There were two capitals then there were like four emperors the tetrarchy the tetrarchs whoa yeah yeah anyways way later constantinople yeah, is becomes istanbul yeah and that is uh that's traditionally sort of the line i think where like like the crusades and such it's like a launching ten- point for those no it's the line where you cross over into the into the east hmm. to the to europeans not a launching point but like uh forward operating base maybe yeah it gets a little tricky talking about the Crusades because, like, European Crusaders sacked Constantinople on their way, on their way to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. They were so like, like they were already in the East as far as they were concerned, probably. Um, but yeah, I think like European Christendom, archetypally or historically, in terms of generalities, regards everything east of Constantinople as the East. Yep. Even though it's much more diverse than that, right? So I see that I see that same reduction in That's what referring to like all those things as orientalism. That's what you mean. Orientalism like is orientalism all of these things everything yeah, east the tendency of this to do that is, is orientalism, orient. right? Yeah. All these, versus all the these occident. cultures, all these different thoughts, everything. Yeah, it's all mixed up in the imagination of the European mind. Sure. Sort of like the thought uh or the the idea of like being Asian now there's the like you might think of Asian as like China, Japan, uh 
et cetera. But like people are like, well, Philippines is all, like mm-hmm. the Philippines are also in Asia. India is also Asia. So like everyone yeah, there is Asian. Vastly different cultures. Vastly different. Right. And the only thing that they have in common really is that from a certain vantage point, they're to the east. Right. Um, and that they are not, there's, you know, they're curved swords and we are straight swords. I hate to I hate to keep being like to I don't hate but I it's embarrassing to keep saying things like to the European mind I don't speak as a European right I speak as someone who's descended of Europeans. Um, so what you're like Gondor, descended from the Numenorians. I'm lesser I'm lesser men. <laughs> um, okay, so and the Haradrim that and that's the men of the men of the Harad and I don't have any quotes to back this up but th- those dudes are obviously. Um, to me, they're obviously like Middle Eastern caricatures. Caricatures? Yeah. In the book, they're, the Haradrim are caricatures of like Muslim army type dudes. You know. Okay. I would... Uh, your use of the word caricature is what I'm, I guess, balking at. Because like, yes, I see the parallels of... of Muslim army but I'm not caricature is like so I feel caricature is so much embodying a character that it's like almost comical and I'm not I'm not getting that sense from well there are the Haradrim are a vast reduction of the realities okay. of caricature all the eastern like, people like the you know the North Africans the Arabians uh, the Asians the Southeast Asians those are those are all kind of bound together in a in a notion of the cruel Haradrim right so these brown men from the south who have a different sensibility than us curved swords yeah and brown skin (laughs) yeah and elephants right Right. yeah yeah. Um, in that sense in that sense yeah in that sense they're caricatures of a real geopolitical reality um, in history for for Europeans All right. cool thanks for the explanation And again, I don't have any quotes to support it, but we've kind of been through it a bit um, with the Haradrim. Yeah, and there's one part. There's one part about that that I don't have the quote either, but I remember that talking about the battle scene, and I guess it's on the Pelennor Fields where there's going to be another charge, and it talks about the sun glittering off of all the curved scimitars, mm. and there's like it was described beautifully. Yeah, like this beautiful like glittering army. This armies that's there like. It seemed like the way Tolkien described it, there was definite beauty to it. That's the thing is there's a fascination to Orientalism. Yeah. Um, a lot of that you see in the way the Greeks and the Romans speak of Egypt. Because it's like there's an exotic exoticism. Yeah, yeah ex- it's exoticized. Yep. Yeah. There's And that's also like thinking of belly dancers that are like all oh, these exotic people. There's also an could be like an eroticism to it as well mm-hmm. again with egypt yeah right yeah that's what and that was also the black mud tide the black tide of mud of occultism um you know you're going to go to egypt and you're going to you're going to quote go native you're going to start worshiping multiple gods and goddesses you're going to start doing magic you're going to come back wearing perfume with incense and you know and coal on your eyelids doing yoga yeah yeah Right, and that stuff is fascinating to the austerity of the colonizer state. Hmm. I it's remember, the fascination that the mind has for the body, frankly. And it's time to chill. Uh, speaking of Freud or whatever, like it's time to just chill and accept the realities of the body and stop um, 
and stop projecting it onto a geopolitical space when it's a, in my opinion, it's a psycho-emotional condition. So there are two things that of like the idea of the curved scimitar that two references in, I guess, pop culture, cinematic culture, um, that I wanted to mention. One is the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom. This came out in the early 2000s. Uh, at one point, there's some Christian crusaders, whatever, they're attacking a caravan. And I remember, so they're charging down like people on horses, like civilians undefended. And I remember seeing this one guy with a turban, a shield, and a curved sword, like standing by himself, essentially, like to defend the people from being slaughtered against like this overwhelming attacking force. And I remember being like, you know, there's, there's valor there. There's that's, that's courage. That's valor to stand up. I also remember the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where Morgan Freeman plays a Moor with a curved sword. Um, Kevin Costner is Robin Hood. And at some point in the movie, they, I think it, they mentioned like one one person defending his home um, and I think they were talking about the places that they sacked like the one soul one, one person defending his home is worth like 10 paid soldiers or 10 crusaders in it for something else you're talking about uh, supremacist valorization of the last standing resistor to the empire maybe that's interesting isn't it I'm just seeing like these crazy these horse are... crazy horse is the same way Geronimo um yeah, that's a that's a thing. The that's like a tokenization of um or like it's like making a specimen of, right? The noble savage. Mm. Yeah. Making a specimen of something that um is slated for destruction. <laughs> I think of Basquiat again. How so? Uh Basquiat died at like age 27. So like he was this token like this token black guy in white New York artist culture and he was slated for destruction whew that's grim is this a good time I mean it's kind of a natural transition into the women question the woman question the uh what did I call it I called it the missing women theory <laughs> speaking of slated hashtag entwives yeah entwives what about regular wives right there's only one wife in the whole in the whole trilogy. Rosie? Rosie. No, Galadriel's also married. Oh, Galadriel's married. Uh, Lobelia Baggins is married. Yep. Um, so we can count the women, and we should do that, but I want to set up this notion first that um, the missing women theory to me is that we have this thing in the two towers where... What's his face? Fanghorn? What's his, real, what's his other name? Treebeard. Treebeard, Treebeard says... You know, we male ants lost our ant wives. Um, was the deal that they went out and when they came back, the ant wives were gone? We don't need to look it up, but they're sure. look, they're looking for Maybe. them. Maybe the women not. the women were there, and now they're they're missing, and that is a curious and I I am guessing unconscious projection of a problem that Tolkien has. Uh, allowed to happen in his fantasy world he's allowed it to be devoid of female largely devoid of female characters and the only time that that's acknowledged 
is vicariously through the Entwives situation. Yeah, I feel like, like he, he wants I feel to, like Tolkien but, does that. They're like there are these issues or things that are like eyebrow raising or problematic, but then he'll address them in small ways. Sort of like Numenorium supremacy and then he'll he'll say like there'll be Athelas or King's Foil, which is this like it's named after a king, but it's also a weed, like this humble thing. Right. This yeah, is yeah, their yeah. strider being like I the like that I am of course, the right, right, true and rightful king, but I'm going to introduce myself as Strider and I want you, Frodo, to take me as I am and to, like, have merit rather than say, I am king. Right, to earn this. one's merit rather than uh, to just uh, present the papers. Right, so it's like this this underlying, like, okay, this underlying problematic stuff and then it's addressed in these small little ways. Or excused. Excused. Maybe right. that's the move to innocence right Right, there. yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, so... I agree. The thing with the Endwives is a little different in that he's not explaining the absence of women in the book. He's like saying, oh, in an unrelated tangent, the Entwives are missing. Mm-hmm. As if there aren't all the women missing in general, right? Like, uh, well, it's curious, says says Marion Pippin, you know, like, what do you mean the women are missing? Haven't you noticed Marion Pippin, you know, as inhabitants of the world? Or like, I don't know. It's It's a little it's a little parable that applies to the to the larger world yeah so let's count the women that we know we did this earlier at breakfast but and i feel and there are, and there my are apologies to any of the women in middle earth that we failed to right. identify because they're i mean they're not many and they're all minor characters relatively right relatively sometimes they wield characters. great power but they are not they're not um he- heroes in the book and we're not going to mention the ones that are in song that like, we're gonna avoid, yeah, Baron and Luthien, or Luthien rather, um, Renell or whatever. Okay, we're not so those. Galadriel, Galadriel, Eowyn, Eowyn, Eowyn's maybe the most on stage. Yep, she's so she and she is heroic. She's the one. She's the token female hero, and she fears a cage, which is nice. Yeah, like, nice that that's brought up. It is. A, so that's like what you were talking about with the excusal, like to excuse the sexism in this book we've got to acknowledge that this one character has feminist impulses. Right. Right. So, so she therefore, makes up for it. So, Yeah, exactly. Moves, right. to, moves to innocence, right. maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, Arwen. Arwen. That's who is very, very much not. Yeah, written, if I remember correctly, she's given a larger role in the film version. The films. Of, yep. Yeah, and there's like she almost was at Helm's Deep fighting in the sure. films, and they cut that. Thank okay. you very much. Okay. Goldberry. Goldberry. I don't. Th- I'm not sure if Goldberry has any lines. I don't recall. Maybe no. one or two. Okay. Rosie. Rosie. The Hobbit that Sam ends up marrying. Yep. And then Lobelia Bag. Lobelia Sackville yep. Baggins. And I feel like we're starting to get into characters that don't really count, but at least they are represented. Lobelia. She's villainous, but also redeemable. Um, yep. She has a redemptive part at the end. And that uh, I don't. That's not necessarily tied to her gender expression. Um, and then I have also mentioned Shelob. There's as another, a female there's character. A, there's in the Houses of Healing. Yep. There's the Mistress of the Houses of Healing. She has a name. Oh, here we go. Pure. I just opened to page one thirty-seven. Pure blood. There's your more supremacy. In there. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Great. that was her name. Pure blood. And her name was pure blood. Fairer than snow was she. <laughs> Ah, 
We didn't mention the immortality of R.F. Kuang. R.F. Kuang in her speech, she says uh, sometimes people think that what she's writing is, uh, you know, like woke, anti-white uh, propaganda. And she says, reader, my crime is looking the way I look and having a protagonist who doesn't look like Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Eorith. No, yeah, Eorith. Eorith is the mistress of the houses of healing. Eorith is the one, is the, yeah, she's the head nurse, maybe. Head doctor, and head she takes, leech. She takes a lot of flack from Aragorn and from the narrator in terms of being, um, like, ignorant. And Gandalf. Yeah, yeah. And and um, and that's not our point here, that, that these women are all um, ditzy blonde stereotypes. The, the point is that they don't exist. Um, in a cast of thousands, maybe um, a thousand, <laughs> that we had eight, we have eight, right? One of whom is a spider. One of whom is a sp- <laughs> yeah, a spider, spider, monster. spider monster. Yep, and we might have missed some. And also, if we're going to say a cast of thousands, then we really we're not talking about only characters that walk on stage. Uh, none of our protagonists are female, and this is. Yeah, it's it's also just a matter of perspective. I was saying earlier too before we were on mic, war movies and war stories, all the characters are male, and that's not because they there's not women um, back in the U.S. or whatever, but like the soldiers in those stories are men because that's who was drafted, right? And they're like, like this is maybe and and I I don't feel confident speaking about Tolkien's biography, but he is a veteran of. Uh, of the First World War. Yeah. And so he did have a real broed out experience. Yep. So like, yeah, I don't fault him. I just want to recognize that there's something missing from the world. The end wives. The end wives. And the yeah. regular wives. By regular, I mean human dwarf and elf. And orcish, and orc. the orcish wives are are conspicuously are orc- missing. The are there dwarf wives, because the they're dwarvish, all spawned. The dwarven wives like they're spawned are spawned and bred. Yeah, right. That's why they're missing, because sort they're like they're chickens. all ma- they're all males. Sort of like chickens use sex a chicken, and if it's a if it's a layer, you're gonna get rid of the males. Yeah, because you just want the females. Or in that Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> Never have I ever watched an episode of Rick and Morty. Yeah, it's a probably the wrong time in history to recommend it, but um. Or SpongeBob or Phineas and Ferb. I've never seen. Yeah, ditto me. Except maybe one episode of each of those. But uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Are you done with supremacy? Or because I have one more thing John, I want. We are living it. We are not done with it. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stupid question. Are you? Because uh, I got one more thing to say before we're done. Totally. I mean, I I I do want to point out um, a parallel that I've seen. A word used for orcs that I've seen used for humans in this world. And it's the word apes. It's used in the two towers on page 53 and 151. So that word, I mean, especially like now I'm like sort of hyper aware of it being used. Um, And it's used twice by Tolkien referring to orcs. That they're ape-like? They're referred to as apes. Oh, as apes. Not ape-like. Yeah. Apes. Hmm. There's orc-like. There's there's also like 
half orcs there's squint-eyed half orcs there's squint-eyed folk. well so you say okay i wanted to get back to that's one thing we missed the squint-eyed foreigner and that's gonna that's kind of the last point i think i i want to get at thanks for reminding me and it's, and now, it's like is this, it, why do you say half orc that's mentioned page 187 of the two towers squint-eyed and squint-eyed is mentioned on the page and so is half orcs the two towers you sure you're not in the fellowship two towers 187 okay because I've got squinty-eyed foreigner. It's used the, frequently. Yeah, okay. So who's the half-orc in the two towers? Uh, down towards the bottom of the page. So they're talking about... There's some other fellow... There were some others that were horrible. Man-high, but with goblin faces, sallow, leering, squint-eyed. Where, where? Flotsam and jetsam. Okay, so it's this is like the leftover people who were inhabiting Orthanc. After the Battle of Orthanc, Battle of Isengard. I guess I'm just. I mean, I just have it underlined. I don't have the. Yeah, it's all good. Go ahead. Uh, goblin faces, sallow, leering, squint-eyed. Do you, do you know they reminded me of that at once of that Southerner at Bree? Yeah. Only he was not so obviously orc-like as most of these were. I thought of him too," said Aragorn. "We had many of the of these half orcs to deal with at Helm's Deep." Right. Okay. That's vital on so many levels. One, that's probably the only time in the book that it refers to half orcs. And half orcs in the in the tabletop role playing world is a whole that's a whole situation. Yeah. There's half orc, you know, people are playing as half orcs, it's a common character type. Um and the notion is kind of it's just kind of embedded. Even if it's a half orc, is it half orc, half human? It depends. But at he, which point it would assume that orcs and humans could breed together to create offspring. Yeah, right. Now, that squint-eyed foreigner from Bree, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a paragraph from that scene. This is from The Sign of the Prancing Pony in The Fellowship, page 213 in the Ballantines. Uh, they're at the Prancing Pony, and it says, uh, the men and dwarves were mostly talking of distant events and telling news of a kind that was becoming only too familiar. There was trouble away in the south, and it seemed that the men who had come up the Greenway were on the move, looking for lands where they could find some peace. And Bree folk were sympathetic, but plainly not very ready to take a large number of strangers into their little land. One of the travelers, a squint-eyed, ill-favored fellow, was foretelling that more and more people would be coming north in the near future. If room isn't found for them, they'll find it for themselves. They have a right to live, same as other folk, he said loudly. The local inhabitants did not look pleased at the prospect. I mean, that immediately reminds, like, makes me think of Europe and refugees yeah. mm-hmm. going into the border, and that like Brie would be Europe, the countries of Europe, not being unsympathetic, but they're like, we don't, we can't have all of you. We'll yeah, take almost, some, but like, you got to move through. It's almost a kind of a um, a nuanced scene because Tolkien doesn't say he does refer to that guy's, you know quarrelsome and he says too he's an uncouth fellow Mm -hmm. so it's inherent in the narration that they're bad guys right but at least we get the depiction of the Brelanders as you know yeah being sympathetic but like ultimately just unable to handle it emotionally or unwilling unwilling to handle it um what I find disturbing about it is the notion that this vaguely villainous character argues that people have the right to live. Yeah. Because that is 
a beautiful humanitarian notion and a, and a notion that binds people together. And it's, it's ugly to me that it's presented as problematic. And so I think getting it back to sort of a colonization or supremacy mindset, the supremacy model rests on the idea that certain, that only some people have the right to live. Yeah. Potentially a, minor, a, potentially a minority because there's this big wave, right? Again, the tide. Um, people are going to need a place to live. You know, oh no, a place to live for people. There's a lot of talk throughout the books of like there it seems like people are very quick to be like well they deserve death they should die um there's a lot of people being like well we should kill those people they shouldn't die. like yes Gollum deserves death etc there's a lot of that talk just like thrown in very casually it's it's a little discomforting if you if you see it and notice it it's discomforting how often and how casually it's thrown in mhm because there's that I'm uh, thinking about that quote from Gandalf like deserves death uh, no doubt he no doubt he does but right. many who die deserve life can you give it to them yep. in that case don't be so quick to deal out death yeah and again I don't know anything about Tolkien's military background uh, but what I think I understand and this is not to excuse but to maybe explain a little bit of it Tolkien lived in a world where you know like if you refused to fight you could be court-martialed for you know desertion and I think probably executed by your own by your own state you know I think an Englishman could be executed by commanding officers for desertion in World War One. I'm not sure do you know I think that I think they got to that point or they had the 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 captain or the officer they'd blow the whistle to charge no man's land the men would go up first, the officer would follow, and the officer was charged to shoot anyone who turned back. Sure. Right. So just instantaneously. If so, you're if you're an English officer and an English soldier is coming towards you, you shoot him. So the right to life, my my point being that the right to life is not um it's not as wide it's not as widely accepted. Mm. It's kind of orthodoxy for us right now that people have the right to live. They do. It also seems to be like they have a right to live if they're not interfering with my life. You have a right to live, but like do it in your own space. Yeah. The right to live is not to be confused with a right to like um, politi- political agency. Yeah. Yeah. And, and resources, material resources. I'm ready to bring this home. Um, I have one more quote that I missed about, I think, melanin. So going back to like the white black thing, um, and this is it's very subtle, and I missed it reading through the first time. But this last time, I listened to I've been listening to the books recently in preparation for this, and this one's like I noticed it this time, and it's subtle. Um, it feels very much like supremacy. So this is sort of like maybe this is also a challenge to the listener. Did you see this? Could you see this? If you see this here, can you see these subtle, implicit biases in the world? Do you say them yourselves? Do you th- do things like this? So this is of herbs and rabbit of herbs and stewed rabbit, page two ninety nine. 
I'm going to read a section of the paragraph, see if you can, I mean, it's going to be, hopefully be obvious at this point of the episode. The hobbits sat down again, but they said nothing to one another of their thoughts and doubts. Close by, just under the dappling shadow of the dark bay trees, two men remained on guard. They took off their masks now and again to cool them as the day heat grew. Frodo saw that they were goodly men, pale-skinned, dark of hair, with gray eyes and faces, and proud. They spoke together in soft voices, at first using the common speech, but after a man of older days, and then changing to another language of their own. What struck me as, like, very subtly inherently supremacist is Frodo saw that they were goodly men, pale-skinned. As it, like pale skin is the first thing that said it's the physical appearance and it is the skin primary to all that proves that they are goodly. And it distinguishes them from the Haradrim. Yep. Who are brown skinned, dark skinned men of Harad. Who will they end up who they will end up skirmishing with in the next few pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's that dead soldier that lies and then is like lies down face away from Sam. But like, where did he come from? What was his history? But then Sam gets caught up about marveling about an oliphant. And like, oh, I saw this right. oliphant. Yeah, and he forgets yeah. about this dead soldier, this first <laughs> person he's seen killed in war. Yeah. Doesn't, That's like doesn't a good, him. it's Orientalism um, kind of uh, contracted to a really fine moment like a really discreet moment. I was almost going to consider the deeper reality of this individual's identity. But look, an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> look at um, the other, and over there yeah. through the trees are the slave quarters. But look at the architecture yeah. of this manor house. Oh, right. Yeah, we, don't right, have to, right. we don't have to think about that. Okay, so um, with, with the fair man and with all this stuff, there's an ideology in this book of supremacy that I don't think is the point of the book. I think it's an accident. And I don't, uh, it doesn't destroy the text. And we've spent a couple hours now extracting those specific ideological um, concerns. It's sort of like the supremacy that's there, the models of supremacy are like this inherent side effect of the context of the world of in which the book was written, the time period, the place, England, the West, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and some of this can also be, I think, tacked up to psychological shadow projection. Um, Tolkien has characters in this book that are doing and saying things that he's imagining the other does because because of a failure to... Again, back to that. I really love that... Uh, that Jürgen Osterhamel quote a disinclination to for cultural compromise a preference for a model where like there's an other and it does that other thing and there is no communication betwixt us and them I want to bring it back to um, R.F. Kuang where I started with R.F. Kuang's lecture because I want to talk about how even though we've spent a couple hours extracting all the all the worst the worst and and most embarrassing tendencies of this book that's not the whole that's not the sum total of the of the of the project right so you're implying that these things are bad and these are the worst parts they're the parts of it that are yeah i spoke of it earlier as poison versus medicine mm-hmm. 
um, the heroic ideology being a sort of medicine but would, for the it self. Would be, it would be poison if the reader takes it as and takes it and uses it. It affects the reader's mind. Yeah, when you're in a certain condition, in reality, when you're in, in a certain world. condition and you take a certain medicine, it can function as a poison, right? So if I'm in a position where I'm already pissed off that everyone in my ta- people in my town are starting to speak this other language, and there's refugees, and like the the color of the skin of the people I see every day is changing, and I don't understand why, like you know, uh, these people are saying this thing on the media that I don't agree with, and I feel like the world is changing and slipping out of my my control as a white man. If I'm in that condition, then the heroic ideology of this book might be a poison Mm -hmm. to me because it might influence me to be more hateful and, uh, and more like in the colonizer mindset of I'm in a, uh, I'm in a minority position with a bulwark between me and, and, and a majority of, uh, types of people that I am afraid to synthesize with. So this is you like you have it perhaps you have your own insecurities you feel vulnerable so you build a thick wall and you do not engage with these people yeah plus the colonizer is vulnerable yeah because the colonizer is a minority sort of like the shark is often the metaphor like the shark versus the goldfish the shark is you act like a shark you act tough but you're actually very insecure yeah and I don't want to I don't want to like um, downplay the advantage that colonizer states have had in terms of like uh, weapons biological yep. warfare um, and uh, just European the, disease yeah just power differentials um, that 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 reduce the vulnerability of that minority position so the idea that RF Kuang was mentioning that this is a chance to learn more about humanity like literature you can learn about humanity rather than looking at it as like a simple as like propaganda. Yeah. Whereas like the heroic notion could be poisoned as as propaganda, but maybe or do you think? Maybe I'll try and phrase that as a question. Do you think if the reader can is able to starts to see the supremacy, these supremacy models within Middle Earth within the story, the by doing it in a book that doesn't matter, like yeah. doesn't doesn't yeah. apply to the world, if we can see it within these pages, understand the context with it in which it was written, in which yeah. Tolkien was, yeah. then we can apply that to our current contemporary yeah. world, see it differently, and when we start to feel as these characters felt angry about like the dark language of Mordor, maybe we can take a moment go oh like what am i really feeling here yeah mm-hmm. so yeah i could do be... think that by deconstructing the the implied reality of the middle earth vision we can start to deconstruct our own we can use it as a tool to understand our own situation yeah if aragorn it... seems occasionally goofy to me maybe i can start noticing when i am doing something that's a little goofy mm. yeah so let me bring it back to kuang so this is rf kuang's uh, lecture. I'm going to just give the name of that lecture again. R.F. Kuang's lecture, Goodness, Beauty, and Truth, The Value of Art in Times of Crisis. This is near the end of her lecture. She says this about Tolkien. No one could call The Lord of the Rings a silly morality tale. 
It succeeds because it is so rich, so fully imagined, so weird and wild and cool. It succeeds in part because Middle-earth feels truly realized. Because Tolkien, combining the best of both his professions, employs appendices and textbook-like exposition and long digressions into ancient song and poems to convince us that this place really exists and has a history. And in making Middle-earth feel true, Tolkien has emphasized what is at stake and engaged the reader in the fight for its survival. So there's a lot more going on in this book than a supremacy model. For sure. And we will get back at that in episode eight. Although it'll probably come up again, right? <laughs> like we can't we can't ignore we we've chosen not to ignore the way that supremacy has colored the text and the right. way that it the way that it um mirrors supremacy models in our world. Right. So we can get back episode eight, stash box stash box episode yeah and then episode nine is the last episode the legacy episode and we're going to give it mm-hmm. to the legacy of tolkien the legacy of middle earth yeah to- middle earth tolkien and like its effect so this may have been a tough episode but stay if with you listened, us if you listened it was a tough episode <laughs> but stay with us episode nine is going to give the legacy there's beauty there too yeah word thanks <laughs>